Revelation chapter 21, starting at verse 1. A new heaven and a new earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars... They will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven, heavens from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12, 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth. 12th Amethyst. 
The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendour into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, good morning. Uh, my name is James, and I'm one of the pastors here. And I feel like God has been preparing me for this sermon for the last couple of years. And so I am very much ready to go. Buckle up, people. We're talking about hope and heaven. Let me pray. Gracious Lord, I do love being a pastor, and today that makes those days all the more sweeter, where we get to ex- explore your word and see what it has to say about heaven, that a bright future awaits. But we do have questions. We have doubts. We have concerns. And so we ask that your word will comfort us Capture our hearts for your beautiful vision of what eternal life looks like with you. Amen. Are you excited about heaven? Some of you, if you're honest, say, not really. Others of you would say, yes. And if I was asked you what was that yes, you probably talk about your future resurrected body, about free pain and suffering. But are you excited about heaven itself and being there? I talked to one of our interns this week, and uh, and she was saying, you know, I believe it's good in my head, but I kind of don't feel like it's going to be good in my heart. I'm not all that excited. And I don't blame her, right? When we think about heaven, images like eternal sameness, being on clouds with playing harps, come to mind. And even if you like cream cheese, it's not all that appealing, right? Some of us think, is heaven going to be like an eternal church service? And you feel guilty that you're not excited by that. (laughs) But to be honest, as a pastor, I'm not all excited about that either, right? Thousands of people around the throne, and if you're an introvert, you're freaking out, right? Where am I going to do? Where am I going to live? What's it going to be like? 
If we're honest, sometimes fear and worry and uncertainty comes up when we think, an eternity in heaven? Now, for many years, I was more excited about the holiday that was coming than heaven, until a little thing called COVID came along. And they had just cancelled all the holidays, and God used that to show me through his word how glorious heaven is going to be. That when you open God's word, he wants to show you a real certain hope of heaven and actually to be more excited by it than the next holiday that's booked in your calendar. So what we're going to do, we're going to do three things. We're going to look firstly at the problem of modern hope, and I've got some help to do that. Then we're going to spend a lot of time looking at what is heaven going to be like, and then ever so briefly, how do you know that you'll be there? So let's start with the problem of modern hope. Heaven always goes hand in hand with hope. Now, there are a lot of people in society who don't believe in a real heaven. They think it's a bribe or a fantasy. But yet we still haven't given up on the idea of it. We hope things will get better. We long to live in a world of peace where domestic violence, abuse and bullying is eradicated because one is one too many. We desire a wholesome community where we're full of love where all desires long and met. We want the reality of heaven as a culture, but we don't believe in it. We want hope, but we don't know where our hope comes from. And this is the problem of modern-day hope. So I've asked Lisa Aitken, who's a member of our 5 o'clock service and a clinical psychologist, who's recently almost about to finish her PhD on hope. Now, I think you're going to do any PhD, and hope is a good topic to do. And so I've asked her to come on up and share some of the thoughts and findings that she has found when it comes to hope, particularly as a clinical psychologist. Thanks, Lisa. Good morning. I became interested in hope about um, 10 years ago when I was counselling clients, many of whom are Christian, and I was noticing this difference between some of my Christian clients um, who really experienced that hope, that, you know, moving from head to heart, and then others where it just didn't get much traction in their real life. But they all had the same Bible, but um, they, they had quite a different experience of it. And I don't just mean the ultimate hope of heaven, but our everyday hopes, you know, hope for a new job, hope to recover from sickness, hope for a healed relationship. So I've spent eight years now of this PhD asking what is the, the psychological sort of experience of hopefulness for any human being, because obviously all humans hope, not just Christians. Let me tell you how modern psychology defines hope. It has two aspects. It says if you have been good at achieving goals in your past and you can think of lots of ways to achieve goals in your future, that's it, you've got hope. And I read that and thought, that's appalling. <laughs> hope is so much bigger than that. Aren't hopes bigger than goals? They're much more meaningful. They're more uncertain. And surely we can't just hope in ourselves. But that is how any psychological research or educational research, where you see the word hope, that's what they mean by hope. So I thought, right, this requires redoing. So that was the start of the thesis and come up with a different way of understanding hope, which I did from I started with the Bible, worked through... 2,000 years' worth of theologians, secular philosophers, modern psychologists, this is why it's eight years down the track, um, came up with a, a different understanding which hopefully will be published in secular psychology journals as an alternative to that definition. So drawing on these, um, 
I think the hope has three aspects, our current experience. There's a thinking aspect, an acting aspect, and a feeling aspect. So firstly, thinking. To experience hope, we have to focus our thoughts on meaningful possibilities in the future. Now, this is problematic because when do you most need hope? It's when you're struggling, when times are hard and you're stressed and you're anxious. Now, I think we actually will still hope in heaven. It's not only when times are hard, because time and God's promises will keep unfolding. You can go from good to more good and be hopeful, but for us, this side of heaven, it's mostly that we're stressed and anxious. And some of you will know that when you're stressed and anxious, your amygdala at the back of your brain gets activated. You go into survival mode and it shuts down your frontal cortex which is where all your big picture, positive, meaningful possibility thinking lives. So our thinking tends to narrow and we focus on worst case scenarios. I don't know if you've experienced that. So to be thinking hopefully, we have to actually correct our thinking and bring it back to focusing on meaningful possibilities in the future and help each other focus on meaningful possibilities. And I choose the word meaningful Carefully, it's not just happy, clappy, positive thinking. This is what are the different ways that the future could turn out well for my good, even if they're not always easy. And of course, as believers, sometimes we look to our future and we think, God, I don't know how you're going to turn this situation into something good and meaningful. And we have just this open-armed stance of trusting that he will work things for the good in a way that might have to transcend our imagination. But as much as possible, let's try and think of all the positive ways that, um, that there are in the future that a, a circumstance could turn out. What about for those who aren't believers? So in 2020, so that was the first year of our lockdowns, I um, asked a whole lot of people around Sydney, not Christians, just lots of people, um, about hope and COVID and how they were coping. And one of the questions I asked was, what do you put your trust in for the future of humanity? And they had 12 options, you know, science, government, social movements, all these different things. And science was the most common answer, unsurprisingly. But it was really interesting that people who trusted in science weren't that hopeful. Their experience wasn't, they didn't experience hopefulness. Only two of the answers for non-believers correlated with them actually feeling hopeful. And I was really surprised. They were the only two beliefs in the options. The belief that everything happens for a reason and the belief that good will conquer evil. And I've been really encouraged by this, that there's this sense, you know, that eternity in their, in their hearts idea that Keith was mentioning, that people have that ultimately things will all make sense. And as believers, um, we can push into that, can't we, and say, well, I'll tell you why things will make sense, because there is a God who is directing the storyline. And I'll tell you why good will conquer evil, because of what God has done in Jesus. And I find when I'm chatting with my friends who aren't believers, there's a lot of vexed issues around in society at the moment that are tricky to talk about. But pushing into this idea, the next time someone says, oh, everything happens for a reason, it's an opportunity. It's already something that resonates with many non-Christians' um, hearts and makes them feel hopeful. We can push into that and give them sort of answers as to why there's reasons and good will conquer. So the second thing is how we act. And people often confuse optimism and hope. 
Optimism is just a passive expectation, yep, it's all going to turn out well. But if you really hope for something, aren't you going to do whatever you can to bring it about? But here's the rub with hope. Often we have to wait. Like it's a bit uncertain. And so we have to be patient and we have to persevere and wait. And so all through the scriptures, when hope is mentioned, so is perseverance, this patient um, waiting. But we have to be poised and ready to act. So Tertullian, who's a third century bishop, he said hope is patience, but with the lamp lit, you're ready to act. And that's when despair kicks in is when we lose that sense. We can act to um, bring about our hopes. Now, of course, it might not be you who can act. You might have to ask others. You might have to hope in your surgeon or in your team at work or as a whole congregation. We can have a communal hope, can't we, where we have to act together to bring about something. So we might have to petition others to make our hopes happen. Some of, sometimes it's about prayer and the agency, in other words, who has to act to bring about our hope is God. So hope, praying is a hopeful act. And sometimes, of course, we are asked to collaborate with God to bring about our hopes. So it's really interesting reading theologians over the last however many centuries, they often have this idea that if we think about heaven, right, think about our ultimate hope, some of the things that are going to happen in heaven is it's going to be a place of justice and love and beauty. And that when now we act in a way, let's say at work tomorrow you have to stand up for something and to, for justice, what you're doing is you're pulling our future hope of heaven backwards into the present. And it's a glimpse of that. And we're becoming, as believers, signposts of our ultimate hope, which James is going to share more about. Um, And I love it, that idea that we enact parallels of our ultimate hope in all these little everyday things we do. When we choose to love, even when it's hard, we're bringing heaven backwards into the present. And I I love that we can have eyes to see all these different parts of our life as, as hopeful parts. So I don't know if you noticed, I worked hard to get lots of Ps in there. There's patient persevering, poised to act, we're petitioning others, we're praying, and we're bringing in parallels, their actions of hope. And lastly and briefly, how do we feel hopeful? There's a bunch of, um, of research at the moment in neuroscience showing the power of glimpses in our imagination. If you imagine something in the future, in terms of what's going on in your brain, you in- you experience it actually more intensely than remembering the past. Our brains are designed just with a flash of imagination to experience emotion. So let's say you're tired, you're exhausted, you really do need that holiday. You don't know if you can have the funds, you don't know if you can get the time off work, but now imagine lying on the warm sand. You just need that glimpse and it's really motivating to keep you persevering, isn't it, towards something that you are hoping for. You don't need the whole holiday itinerary, you just need the image on the sand. And this is what James is going to talk about now, is God knows this about us when we have these glimpses of heaven through the scriptures, in prophecies, in metaphors, in images, That's actually all we need to create this emotional experience of hope. So I'm looking forward to hearing the details about that. The summary, though, that I've talked about, so hope has three things, how we we think about meaningful possibilities, how we act, and how we feel, which is what we're going to hear more about now. Thanks, Lisa. 
So secondly, what will heaven be like? Let's unpack some of these glimpses that God has provided for us. Often I hear this line, we don't know a lot about heaven, but we do. we just got to look harder. Here are some of the images that the Bible glimpses that God gives us, what heaven's going to be like. It's on the screen. Heaven's described like a country where Hebrews 11 says we're longing for a better country, a heavenly one. A city. We're looking for the city that is to come, Hebrews 13. An earth. Then I saw a new heaven, a new earth. I could talk about others, kingdom, rest, banquet. That the Bible prevents heaven in oh-so-familiar categories to bridge our understanding. Now, it's not like, if heaven's like a city, it's not like you're scratching your head thinking, I wonder what a city is like. You know what a city is like, don't you? It's a place of buildings, of culture, of arts, of festivals, of music, of food. When it says the new earth, it's not like you think, I wonder what an earth is like. You know. It's full of mountains and sunrises and rivers and people and trees and animals. Heaven is a physical place. The idea that heaven is this non-physical realm is false and anti-Christian. Just like you're not going to be a soul or a spirit, and you're going to have a resurrected body, you and I will not live in the clouds or a mystical place. You will live in a world that you can touch and taste and feel and see. When God said in Genesis 1, when he made this world, it was good, he wasn't joking. Sin, death, and that had destroyed it, but it was still good. God is in the business of not rejecting or replacing. He's in the business of resurrecting. As Revelation 21, Jesus says, I am making everything, what? Again? No. New. That there's a continuity from this world into the world to come. Heaven will not be foreign. You won't walk into heaven thinking, I don't belong here. I don't know what to do. Don't, no, no, no. It will be oh so familiar. You may be thinking, hang on, hang on, James. That reading that Joe read to us, Revelation 21, that, that city of Jerusalem, you know, the, the pure glass, the sapphire, the emerald, eh, it doesn't seem all that appealing, the place to live, right? But there, that image there is to evoke the imagination, to get your creative Jesus thinking, to send people back and think, whoa. What a stunning place this is going to be. I mean, why is it kids love Disneyland? Because at the beginning of every movie, there it is with Tinkerbell over the front and Mickey Mouse and all his friends. They yearn to go there. Now, you don't yearn for that because the idea of overdosing on fairy floss and roller coasters is not a all that appealing thought. But why is it when you see those travel blogs, you yearn to go to Europe to see the castles and the cathedrals? You yearn to travel to go to New Zealand to see the mountaintops? Because you and I are drawn to the stunning. A number of years ago, I went with my dad to see Uluru in the middle of the desert, this rock. And I thought, ah, oh, it's a rock. But when I stood in front of it, I, like literally, my breath was taken away at the bigness of this rock in the middle of the desert. When you go snorkeling and see the wonders of the fish, a sunrise that just, whoa, that meal that you have where your eyes just pop, that is a taste of what is going to be normal in the new heavens, new earth. As someone said, the best parts of this world are sneak peeks of the world to come, like licking the spoon from grandma's beef stew an hour before dinner. Do you know what my favorite image, though, in the Bible, describing heaven? Home. 
Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's has many rooms. It were not so, I would have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you. That God is preparing you a room. That we will live in homes. Isaiah 65, right? In the Old Testament, talks about new heavens and new earth. And one of the images is you'll build homes and dwell in them. Jesus is getting you a room ready. A number of years ago when I was young, we went and stayed with a family in Dubbo, an older couple. And there's something about country hospitality that is just so beautiful. And I remember going to the room, right, where there was, they'd set up this bed and there was like a, a chocolate on the pillow, a glass of water next to the bed, toys there. We were quite young at the time. And we didn't know then, but they had gone through so much effort of making us feel home. They didn't know us. But Jesus knows you. He knows what you're like, your preferences, your colors, your comforts. And he is getting a room ready for you. You know when you come back after being away and you come to your home, to your room, and you have that feeling? Ah, that is what it's like when you step foot into heaven. I'm home. Heaven is going to be oh so familiar. And yet it is going to be radically different. 2 Peter, verse 3, says this, That day will bring about destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven, new earth. Now that fire, that melting, you think, oh, that's not good. But what the goodness in that, it's a refining. It's a purifying effect to get rid of all the badness, sin and corruption. That the new heavens, new earth will be dramatically different. And it's not just a little wash, a little cleanse. No, no, no. On Judgment Day, all of creation will go through purification by fire. There's a real passing away and a real continuity. Like a caterpillar that wraps itself in a cocoon and becomes a butterfly. Same thing and yet radically different. And if God can resurrect your body, right, from either being cremated or eaten by worms, if he can resurrect your body, he can resurrect this world from the fire. And he does it for one reason. Revelation 21. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That heaven is a place where we say goodbye to goodbyes. Funerals, hospitals, war, famine, sickness. No more. Where wheelchairs and coffins and needles will be placed in a museum because that's our history not our present. But there'll be no more lumps, warring lumps or skin marks, wrinkles or dementia. Where there'll be no more sin, where you'll see someone who's beautiful and you will not lust. Where you'll see someone flourish and you will not be envious. Where you'll see someone create something and you won't be suspicious. Where you'll see someone with a different skin color to you and you'll not have a racist thought. You'll see someone who is different to you and that insecure, offensive joke will not come out of your mouth. Because the old order of things has passed, gone. All the things we hope this world will be, will be in the next. But there are some things that are gone in heaven that we may not necessarily want them to go. There's four that I can think of. The first one is the sea. You know, it's Revelation 21. I saw the new heaven, new earth. It's passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now, you surfers out there are really freaking out about this verse, aren't you? But what you're going to see in Revelation, the sea 
was a symbol of cosmic evil. It was the place where evil came from. In Revelation 13, it says, I saw the beast coming out of the sea. That the new heavens, new earth will not have no ocean, right? Because that was good when God created it, but it'll have no evil. Evil will not rise up in the new heavens, new earth. The snake, Satan, will not slither into the new heavens, new earth like he did in the Garden of Eden. No ruler will rise up and corrupt everything. Even after 10,000 years, you will not all of a sudden have a sinful thought bubbling away. No, no, no. We're not going back to the Garden of Eden. There is no knowledge of the tree of good and evil. We're going forward to a new heaven, new earth, where evil will not bubble up. What about work? What about your job? You know, the images about heaven is of a thousand people praising God, singing his praises. And to be honest, even if you don't like singing, you will be in that state for far longer than you think, right? It's like a teenager infatuated with their love, like, hello, you know, you will be infatuated by Jesus, right? You cannot help but praise him. But you'll not always be in that state. There's continuity else as image bearers, those who work, who are creative. That work is a gift given before the fall, but the work that you and I do is cursed. Revelation 14 says we will rest from our labor, from our toil. Not a rest from work, but a rest from the toilsome frustration, exhaustion, and pain, the thorns and the thistle that work brings. Because Revelation 22 says there will be no longer any curse. But you know what the problem is? Some of your jobs are tied to living in a broken world. If you're a lawyer or a doctor, you're not needed in the new heavens and new earth, right? There will be no doctors and lawyers. Now, someone's saying, hallelujah to that, right? (laughs) But perfect justice, perfect bodies. Now, to those who aren't lawyers and doctors in the room, all three of you, you might be... (laughs) Sorry, I couldn't help myself. Uh, You might think, well, hang on, my job is not tied to the fall. I'm a teacher, I'm an accountant. Doesn't mean I'll be doing my job for the rest of eternity. In the new creation, you'll have the freedom to do the things that you've always wanted to do. The time, the ability will not get in the way. So perhaps that your hobby, your interest became the main thing that you glorify God with. Whatever you'll do, you will not be unemployed and you'll not be bored. Remember, friends, the curse is not going to be their new creation. That does not mean that challenges won't be there, problems to solve, things to create, to discover, to learn. It's like the, I heard a guy who's worried about heaven. He loved playing golf, but he was worried that every time he's going to whack that ball, it's always going to be a hole in one, every time. <laughs> and that's just going to be boring. But who said that he's going to get a hole in one? Now, when he whacks that ball, he's not going to strain his back. He's not going to get angry when the ball goes off in the bushes. But he will have to grow in getting better and better at golfing. I don't know what it is for you. For me, I remember my dad saying as a bird watcher, he said, you know, when you get to heaven, James, God, who's a good God, will give you 10,000 birds to go see. And then say, when you found them, come back to me and I've got 10,000 more for you. Heaven is everything that you never had time for on earth, friends. That is what the new heavens and new earth is going to be like, where whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, you will be doing it for the glory of God. What about relationship with God? 
That's going to be different. Revelation 21 says this, verse 2. I heard a loud voice saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. He will, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. Heaven is where God dwells. Earth is where we dwell. But when Jesus returns, we ain't going up to heaven. God is coming down to us, where we will dwell with him. That is the final stage in God's plan. See, when Eden was there in the garden, God walked with Adam and Eve, and earth was, as it were, God's backyard. But sin separated us. But God kept pursuing us. He lived in a tent, in a temple. He took on flesh, became Lord Jesus. His spirit dwells within us. And yet the final stage is coming in heaven, where God will dwell with us, where heaven and earth will meet. And you will walk with God. You will see him. When you pray, you will not have to close. You can pray to his face, talk to him. That you will have a faith that is by sight. That you'll be united to Christ in the fullest sense because you'll see him. What about marriage? Jesus says in Matthew 22, there'll be no one who is married or no one who will get married. Everyone will be single in heaven. That's why I can just say it is a bad idea to find your meaning in your marital status or sexuality. It is very temporary. But those in bad marriages at the idea that marriage will end are thankful. But for a lot of people in good marriages, there's a grief. Or if you yearn to be, you miss out. But here's, let me clarify. It is not right to say there's no marriage in heaven. Because there is just one. Where Jesus is the groom and his church the bride. That is the heaven that everyone is a part of. So if you are married, when you look to your single brother or sister... You are seeing your future. And to those of you who are single, when you look to the married brothers, you are seeing your future. That is why we need one another. Because in our humanity, we will be single, and yet we will be married to Christ. Now, let me clarify, right? In our humanity, that does, though we will not be married, those who are married, that doesn't mean it's the end of the friendship. It's not like when we get to heaven, we'll have this amnesia of what happened in the previous life. No, no, no. When Jesus was resurrected, he didn't say to the woman, what's your name again? No, no, he said, Mary. He remembered her. And you will remember those in Christ in the new creation. Either they used to be married to a parent, a child, a friend. We will remember each other. We will remember this moment. Remember James, when you preached on heaven that we might remember? You will remember this. We will have this conversation again in the new creation. That is why heaven is a great reunion. Marriage always had an eschatological purpose to it. Jesus is not going to replace it with something far worse. See, when a marriage is united, loving, intimate, safe, where it is orgasmically enjoyable, right? That is a taste of what seeing Jesus and relationship with him is like for all eternity. So is it going to be fun? You bet. Is it going to be exciting, safe? Are you going to feel complete? Absolutely. Will all your desires, all your longings be met? No, they'll be blown out of the water. The purpose of marriage, if you're in one or see one, is to prepare you for heaven in meeting Jesus. And if you're not experienced on earth, you will in the age to come. Because as Jesus says in John 17, this is eternal life, that you may know the one true God. That you may know him and you are known.
Heaven ain't boring because God ain't boring. Heaven is a place of utter joy and wonder and it has always been part of God's plan and purpose. Let me briefly do our last point. How do you know whether you'll be there or not? And I'm going to answer this question by talking about pets. Often people say, will my pet be in heaven? And I've got a number of reasons to say that I think yes. One reason is your pets have done nothing wrong. They've not sinned. You and I have. We have sin that needs forgiveness, that needs atoning. I think your pet will be in heaven. The question is, will you be there to see your pet? Because heaven is not the default position for us humans. No one goes there automatically. We think if I compare myself to Hitler or that crazy neighbour down the road, I've got a good chance, right? But have a look, Revelation 21, verse 7 says this, Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and they will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake. The reality is all of us are on this list one way or the other. We may not have murdered, but most, have been, most of us have been sexually immoral, been cowardly, or the last one, liar. And if you think, well, I haven't lied, welcome to the club. <laughs> hell, <laughs> hell is our default. It is far too easy to go to hell. The question is, how do we become verse 7? How do we become victorious? Because we know we're not perfect, and if heaven is perfect, we miss the boat. We look for the one who is, Jesus Christ, who was perfect in every way, who was victorious over sin and death and Satan. And that is why, friends, heaven is described to get there by an invitation. An invitation which is paid for by Jesus' blood, guaranteed by His Spirit, offered freely by God the Father, that you cannot buy, that you cannot earn, but just receive. This world may be the only world you know, but the, a better world is coming. And deep down, you have longings. You are homesick for a place that you have never been. And there is still room for you. There is still time to accept for you and for those you love. But we do need to accept this invitation. And once you do, you will spend the rest of your life looking forward to this hope, this new heavens, new earth. You know, my most popular email that I ever sent here at church that received the most positive responses was when in lockdown, where the holidays were cancelled, and I stopped to write a list of all the things I was looking forward to to the true holiday heaven. And I wrote down a 10 or so, and I shared them with you. And it was the most positive response because you yourselves shared with me, many of you, what you were looking forward to. And some of you said it was the most productive thing that you did in all of lockdown. If you, friends, were to this week just stop and to write down what are the things that you are looking forward to, that will inflame your hearts to be excited for what is to come. That is a spiritual habit worth spending the time doing. As it says in 2 Peter 3, look forward to what? Holidays, retirement? No, no, no. A new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are making all things new. And that is what we crave most of all. Our hearts, our longings, our bodies, our relationships, our experience are homesick for heaven. 
We thank you, Jesus, that you made a way, that you died so we could live and truly live. May we spend more time dreaming and yearning and thinking of what's to come as it's to set our hearts and minds on the things above. When we experience the thrilling and the delightful, may that get us excited for our future. When we have moments of worship for you, Lord Jesus, may that get excited to seeing you face and to face where heaven and earth meet. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, that we have no less days to sing your praise than when we first begun. Amen.